This wasn't your typical case. What really got me were the inconsistencies, the lies, the malice. The deeper I dove in, the more questions I had. Like, how the F did we elect Trump? We talk about this and more on our podcast, Feminists Without Mystique, where we discuss politics, pop culture, and sex. Because what's spookier than the attempted murder of our democracy? This is so very content that is not suitable for kids like me. Welcome to Crime Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> How many episodes start like that? Welcome to Crime Crazy. Giggle and then start again. Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plyme and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system, but we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Yes, we are. How are you, Diana? I am okay. How are you? I'm good. Do you know what this is? Saturday. It is. It is. It is our first episode of May. What? I know. May the fourth be with you. May the fourth be with you. See, Wait, this is how I know. Also with you. See, there I don't we know go. How to answer. I was going to say yeah. this is how I know you did not grow up in a Lutheran home because the automatic response is, and also with you. Isn't that also an also an Episcopalian? <laughs> <laughs> Can't talk. I don't know. I'm not an Episcopalian. I'm not a Lutheran either, but Same. I, I was occasionally forced to go to their church. Yeah, my grandma was a German Lutheran, so if we went to church, it was because she wanted us to, and, yeah. And, and that's what you had to do. And that's what I had to do. So, you that know, it was like two, fair. three times a year, never really got the whole rhythm down. Oh, <laughs> fair. Um, so I was, like, teeing up your next part for you perfectly, and then you got us all off track, with this Star Wars stuff? It's May. It is May. Do you know what that means? What? It means that we get to tell everybody who our awesome Patreon supporters are. I know. I'm well, excited. if you knew, why did you make me say it? Because it's your <laughs> part to say. Well, <laughs> it's fine. It's your job. <laughs> it is my job. It is my one job. But before I do that job, I do want to tell you that Crime Crazy is sponsored by Dave Hat and Seb Bryce. Woohoo! Thank you. Crime Crazy sponsors support the show through Patreon at $10 per month or above. And, you know, they're just extra awesome people. Yes. Agreed. But because it is the first podcast that we are recording in May, we want to give a shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. So we would like to thank Brian Williams. Thank you. Dave Hatt again. And you. Eric Boscana. Thank you. I'm not at all sure I pronounced your last name right. I'm sorry, Eric. You did. Did I? You did. I know Eric. Oh, excellent. Jess Lee. Thank you. Patty Snow. Thank you. And Peg Pool. And you. Yay. <laughs> we do not have any review shout outs this week, um, which made me kind of sad. So somebody wow. should go do that. And if you're listening yeah. to this, it should be you because I bet you haven't and you should. It's true. I mean, I mean, we have a lot of reviews, we do. but we also have a 
ton of listeners who have not reviewed. And guys, it's a pain in the ass because iTunes, but really, if you're on the computer or your phone anyway, like just click, click. This is awesome. And that's it. That's right. That's all all you need. Mm -hmm. And think how great you'll feel next week when we're like, and you're awesome. Yay. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? I think it would be nice. I think so. You can also follow Crime Crazy on all the social medias at Crime Crazy Pod or visit our website at crimecrazy.com. Yay. Again, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. So, Erin. Yes. Did you learn anything this week? I did. I did learn something this week. Um, I have to pull up my notes, though, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to say it. Atlanto occipital dislocation. Okay. That's what I learned this week. Also known as orthopedic decapitation. What? Also known as internal decapitation. (gasps) Oh, I've heard of that. Yes. So basically, it's a giant word. Well, not the internal decapitation part. That's a less giant word. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's when some sort of trauma happens and your spinal column detaches from the base of your skull. Okay. You can survive. Oh, God. What? You can. It doesn't instantly kill everyone, but 70% of people immediately die. I feel like that might be okay. If you immediately died? Yeah. I cannot imagine that it would not be excruciating. Yes. So my sort of reasoning for thinking this would be excruciating is because, so I get migraines Mm -hmm. and everyone who knows me knows. (laughs) (laughs) But when I first started going to the neurologist and they're going through like, how many do you have? And what is the pain level and all of this? She um, was ruling things out. And we talked about if you have spinal fluid leaking out in your like neck and around the base of your skull, that Mm. that is one of the most painful things that humans can go through. And it's really horrible and blah, blah, blah. I've, I've, I don't have that. I've had all of the MRIs and x-rays and all of the, all the things, but um, I feel like if your spinal column separates from the base of your skull, spinal fluid would get out yeah. And it would be bad. Well, and that's all nerves. Yes. Yes. Oh. Also, my God. I would I mean, you'd be paralyzed, right? Don't you think that's a paralyzing? Yeah. Neck injury. Well, in the I mean, I wonder if that's why so many people die initially because like you're not breathing. I don't know. Because if you're paralyzed to that extent. Right. Your whole body is. Right. Well, and I would think, too, that if you don't die, then any amount of movement or, like, if anybody does anything wrong at all, you would. Like, it's probably, like, you only just barely did not die. So if we do everything right, 
you might not die, but otherwise, like, there's no hope. Well, and do these people recover? Oh, all I know is that only 30% of people don't immediately die. So they I have ha- no idea. So like, they hang on for two or three minutes. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if... I don't know. Oh, my God. That is horrifying. It is. At least it's got to be quick. Oh, yeah. Immediate death. Oh. Atlanta occipital dislocation. I love the word occipital. It's a great... No, it's a pretty great word. Right. So it's a really fun thing to say. It was a horrible, horrible thing. It is so terrible. We got to stop recording before bed. (laughs) (laughs) oh diana it it relaxes both of us to think about these kinds of things it's true there's no hope for us what did you learn oh man uh i have a new life goal oh i'm ready and it is to be like this woman (gasps) a grandma in dallas who was able to solve a crime by knowing shit about yarn Oh my God, <laughs> this is about you, except for the grandma part, but you know, right. you are give me, Give me a few more years. Uh, a lady named Amy Glover works at a Habitat for Humanity thrift store in Dallas, Texas, and she came into work one day and saw just boxes and boxes and boxes of really nice yarn that seemed out of place in that particular thrift store. She asked her manager about it. And he said that two guys had donated half a trailer's worth of yarn to the store that morning. So she knew her yarn and she knew that that kind of yarn went for about $35 a skein. Yeah. And she thought that was suspicious and she started investigating. So I don't exactly know how the, how she found this out, but she f- soon found out that the yarn came from a company called a hundred Ravens which is an independent hand-dyed yarn company from New Hampshire. Which I am currently looking up, just in case we need something. We might. They were on the way to the DFW Fiber Fest when their trailer was stolen from the hotel parking lot. Oh. So besides the yarn, the trailer also had all their display stuff, their register, the flooring for the, like, all the booth shit that you have at these fiber fairs, along with all of their inventory. So... They were like, well, we're fucked. Guess we're going to go home. Right. So they were on the, I think they were on the way home when this woman, Amy, caught up with them on the phone and was like, hey, I have all your yarn. And it it turned out it wasn't all of it. It was about a third of it. Um, But it was over a thousand skeins. A thousand skeins. Um, so they reconnected. A hundred ravens was able to cover the yarn, and with the help of the other vendors, they were able to put together a booth at the Fiber Fest, so they didn't completely lose their shirts over this whole event. Aww. This also proves that yarn people are the best people. Agreed. Also, I realize they're not like our sponsors, but oh my god, these project bags are adorable. Oh no! There's one called. <laughs> pinups bicycle babes and it's a bunch of like pinup girls on the fabric it's really cute well that (sighs) is very cool and i agree that like that should be your life goal also i hope that they were like you know what 
you should pick some yarn out and take it home for saving our butts. I would like to believe that that is how that worked. Right? Like, hey, here's a $1,000 gift card. Right. <laughs> Have all the yarn you'd like. Right. Very cool. I like yeah, it. I saw that. I actually have been sitting on this one for a couple of weeks because I don't remember what I learned last week, but it was relevant. Oh, the Howard thing. Um, so I've been sitting on this one. Well, um, I have a story to tell you. You do? Do you want to hear a story? I do want to hear a story. Guess what? Monkey No butt. dead babies. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> um... All right, so last week was a horrible dead baby story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in that story, aside from the fact that woman is awful and did not get enough time, mm-hmm. um, is that there was some ambiguity around the cause of death, mm-hmm. and she tried to make it look like an accident. Mm-hmm. So I found another crime where they tried to make it look like an accident. Ooh. So Donnie Rudd, was 76 in 2018, which is when this story resurfaced. So he was born in 1942. Um, Lived a little while, was married, I believe divorced. I don't think his first wife died, so I think he was divorced. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a school board member, he was a lawyer, and then in 1973, he did something a little strange. He had been living with a woman named Diane, not Diana, And her four children. Okay. So many children. It's so many children. And he was 31. And to the whole world, it looked like this was like his relationship. I mean, like he lived there. He was helping to parent the children. They'd been in a committed relationship. And then one day in like July or August, he said, hey, I'm going to marry Noreen a 19-year-old that apparently he'd been seeing on the side, and he left and he married her. Wait. Just out of the blue. Who has a full-time job and is co-parenting four children and has time for a fucking affair? With a 19-year-old. With a teenager. Make time for that. I mean, I guess. I don't know. And he was how old? 31. It's, it's one of those that age, bad. <laughs> well, no, but it's one of those age differences that is like if we were 30 and 50 or 40 and 60, like, okay, that's a little bit, but not well, too bad. That's only 12. So that's only 12 oh, years yeah. apart. If it was 30 and 40 or 40 and 50. Well, right. Like, that's fine. But like, but, my next sibling is 11 years younger than me. And we just really started having a decent relationship Right. Like, I guess 10 years ago, but still, yeah, it's a big, it's a big age difference when one of you is just out of high school and the other one is a lawyer, a school board member and raising four children. Right. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of life differences. There's a lot of life differences there. I feel like all of those age differences really ought to start when the younger person is at least... 28 because I feel like 28 is when people start to act like real grown-ups <laughs> so <laughs> yeah it's probably about right anyway so he ran away he married Noreen and ran away wasn't really ran away he just like let like moved out and married yeah. Noreen 
And then a month later, in September of 1973, they had been visiting Noreen's uh, parents, and they were driving home, and he took sort of an alternate route. He went down this road called Dundee Road, which was sort of out in the middle of nowhere, really dark, really secluded. It was not the most direct path home, Mm -hmm. but he never was asked to account for why. He decided to go this way. But on the way home... According to Rudd, a car ran them off the road and they went into like a, like a field and his wife was thrown from the car oh. and her head landed <gasps> smack on a rock. Oh. And he called 911 and the officer that arrived was Officer Bish. He was a relatively new cop. You've got to be real he- careful saying that name. Yes, it is so true. Rudd was sitting in the front seat of his car with Noreen, and he was like cradling her, and she was unconscious. There was blood everywhere. Oh, God. So Bish was a new cop, which was important because this was his first fatality, because Noreen was actually at the time dead. Um, It was the middle of nowhere. It was completely unlit. They took her out of the car. They laid her down in the grass and Bish began CPR on her. The paramedics arrived. They took her to the hospital. She was pronounced dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, she had never, she had never been alive. Like it was yeah. too late by the time the officer got there. So, um, Bish was really haunted by the whole thing. It was really tragic. It felt off to him. Mm-hmm. But very shortly afterwards, the uh, they they did like a, an autopsy, but just a really superficial one. Sure. And declared her dead of an accidental death, that the car crash had killed her. Mm-hmm. The emergency room doctor seemed to think that was plausible. The coroner thought that was plausible. Um, and... And so Rudd moved on with his life. He got a $120,000 inheritance. And then almost immediately moved back in with Diane and married her. Okay. So I feel like... Interesting. Yes. (laughs) But if we're giving him the benefit of the doubt... We could say he was in this relationship. He had basically a fling. It ended tragically. And then he went back to where he was comfortable. The person that he had loved, like, tried to keep going on with his life. Like, I feel like you could almost think that wasn't too terribly strange. Um, Although, that whole... uh, That's weird. Yeah. So, it turns out, yes, it is. So, he did keep in touch with Noreen's family. Sure. And, um, one, so, and they never really suspected him. Like they thought he was a pretty good guy and this had all been really tragic, but what he did not do with Noreen's family was ever let them know that he was married to Diane. So somehow managed to cover that up and keep it a secret. Weird. Right. So then fast forward years and now it is 1991. And police are investigating an unsolved murder, Loretta Bakke. 
So she was shot to death in her home and the police are looking into it and they have found she's a legal client of Rudd's and there had been some dispute between the two of them. She had threatened to report him for his conduct and like whatever around some sort of financial matter Mm -hmm. that she felt that he was really unethical about. And as they're looking into this and sort of all of his practices, they realize he is, in fact, kind of a shitty lawyer and he gets disbarred for unethical practices. So not just just a shitty lawyer, but like. Yes. No, like a shitty human. Yeah. Who is a lawyer. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. He he may have also. He was a bad lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, he may have also been a bad lawyer, but he was also a bad lawyer. Bad dude. (laughs) Right. Got it. Um, so they're investigating this in Arlington Heights and one of the officers on the case finds, um, some information out about Noreen's death. And as he's flipping through everything, he's like, this does not like, this is really suspicious and I can't believe no one ever looked into it. So he contacted the original police department and with their help got permission to exhume Noreen's body. And they did another autopsy. So in 2013. Wow. Yeah. Rudd was being questioned about Noreen's death in Texas. Um, He'd been arrested. He said he couldn't, during the interview, said he could not remember if he had struck his wife in the head before her death. Yeah. Wait. What? Yeah. So apparently essentially admitted to the murder. Well, but I feel like that's just a question you can automatically answer. Yes. Like, if it's anything other than yes or no, you did it something. Doesn't, <laughs> it didn't make sense. Right. If it's right. anything other than no, of course not. Then well, right, it I mean, is the same as answering yes. Well, and if he had a history of abuse, I guess, then that's a legitimate, like, I don't know if I thumped her right before then. Right. But no, you would think that the default answer is like, no, of course, I never hit her. Right. Yeah. I, I don't. And his story was car ran us off the road. She flew out. Her head got hit on this rock. And then I grabbed her and I brought her back to the car and I tried to revive her and I called 911 and the cops came and they did CPR and we went to the hospital and like, it's awful, right? So if they get around to that line of questioning and they're like, so did you hit her head on a rock? His story in no way can both be she flew out of the car and hit her head on a rock and maybe? Right. Could be. Could be. I don't remember. I mean, that seems like something I would do, but I don't remember doing it. Right. It just makes no sense. No. So they have him arrested. And at this point, um, both of Diane's daughters write a book that they then are selling. And the book is called something like Living with the Devil, The Search for Truth, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't have the title written down mm. but it it's important because it comes up in his trial so it takes a really long time to try someone for murder mm-hmm. fast forward a little bit and we get to the trial um, and now we are in the 2018 era so it has been many 
many years since the murder. Um, The trial apparently hinged mostly on the forensic evidence around her death. Uh, a lot of the jurors said that's what sort of decided it for them. So the mm. prosecution claimed after they had exhumed an autopsy, the body, that the body showed signs of being struck repeatedly with oh. a blunt object. The defense cited the ER doctor's initial findings, which were not suspicious, and the initial coroner's findings that it was an accident. And they also hired an expert and paid him $20,000, which came up in the closing arguments, um, who said that in his professional opinion, um, that it was an internal decapitation, Mm -hmm. also known as an Atlanta-occipital dislocation (laughs) from being thrown from a car, which was... Right. And it it was, you know, um, it agreed with the initial findings. Yeah. The prosecutor definitely pointed out in the closing argument that this person never performed an autopsy, never saw the body, just was giving an opinion based on like an x-ray or some sort of thing he'd seen. So not a whole lot of research there. Um, the defense, so the prosecutor had also put the daughters on the stand Mm -hmm. to talk about the weirdness around, we grew up and he was living with us and then he married this, or then he was like hurting for money and then he married this woman and then a month later she died and he had money and then he moved back in and married our mom. The defense's response to this was they just wrote a book about that and how great would it be for book sales if he gets convicted of the murder that they wrote about in the book. Right. So a lot of back and forth, which I thought was all really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, another really big factor in the trial. I feel though, I mean, the book was already written. The book got written when he was arrested. And then um, I guess it was, it was published and everything by the time the trial came around. Right. And so if they could get him convicted, it would give credence and interest and publicity to the book. But if the murder trial was going to happen anyway, they were likely going to be called. And I oh yeah no it, like, yeah book sales have nothing to do with it. Like they didn't set this whole thing up because it would be good for their book. Like when the court tells you you're going to show up, you just do that. You do. <laughs> so I think the defense's argument was, of course, they're going to say that he's guilty and it's suspicious and like talk it up because that's the premise of their book. Right. And they want to sell books. Or it could be that they lived with this man for so many years and they know he's a creeper. (laughs) Right. They could tell something was weird. Also the facts support something was weird. Right. So no, I, I think it was just sort of a like, let's try to cast some doubt into their testimony kind of thing. Yep. Um, Shady. Right. So another big deciding factor in the trial was Bish because he was the first cop on the scene in 73. Mm -hmm. He testified that when he got there and he found Rudd holding Noreen that he, you know, was helping her or helped to put her on the ground so that he could do CPR and his hand was on the back of her head and it was mushy. Oh, God. So, like it had been very much pulverized and not just one quick 
whack. Mm-hmm. Um, Rudd, at the time when he was explaining everything and they were trying to take care of Noreen, apparently pointed sort of out in the general direction of where he said her body had been and said that there was a rock there. He knew that's what she'd hit her head on because it had her hair and blood on it. Well, it was really, really dark and there was somebody who was dying and it was Bish's first go. And even when he came back later to look at the scene between the time that they took Noreen to the hospital and she was pronounced dead and the time that the coroner said it was an accident when they were investigating, he never managed to locate this rock Mm. that supposedly had her hair and blood on it. Mm -hmm. But again, he was really new and it wasn't a high priority. So it is possible that he just didn't locate it. Sure. Um, but he also said that until they laid Noreen in the, on the ground to do CPR, there had been no grass or dirt on her clothes. Huh. Yep. So he had always worried and always wanted to investigate, but because the coroner declared it an accidental death, he wasn't able to do that. And so it just became one of those like things that bothered him, yeah. but never was resolved. So the jury deliberated and found Rudd guilty of Noreen's murder. They convicted him and he has not yet been sentenced. He is planning uh, an appeal, his lawyer says, if he survives because he is currently undergoing chemo. He is 77 years old this year um, and is not in good health. And so assuming that... It is worth it, essentially. Right. Because he'll probably get some sort of compassionate medical release kind of thing, even if they convict him. Yeah. If he's really sick. So, he got away with that for a lot of years. Yeah. Like 40, what is it? 40, if he was arrested in 2013, 41, 42 years. Yeah. It's... It's kind of amazing. Like if he had not. So the other thing is this other woman that was shot, the client, Loretta Baki, Mm -hmm. she, they are not currently charging him with her murder. Like that's still an open unsolved case. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have enough evidence to really tie him there, but it sounds like, I mean, I would, if he killed Noreen, which obviously he did. Yeah. And he was, super unethical and did all of these horrible things as an attorney. I would buy that he killed Loretta Bakke. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't have a stellar record there. No. So I guess that we can't say like he would have gotten away with it. He hadn't been for those darn kids. (laughs) Right. But at the same time, like he got away with it for a really, really long time. Oh yeah, he lived his life. I mean, he did. Even if they put him in jail now, like he's dying anyway. You know, they're not taking away good years. No, no, they're not. Um, Yeah, I. Yeah, he got to go on and and do all of the other things, and I. I guess I wish that I had been able to find more information on how unclear it was. Like I realized in 73 
we were not where we are now with technology and forensic science and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if the initial ER doctor and coroner did a good job or if they should have done a better job. Like, did they, were they crappy at their jobs and let him go? Or should he have been arrested right away? I don't know. Or did they just not spend a lot of time on something that seemed clear cut? Right. Not every death is a murder. No. And a lot of the articles I read said that one of the reasons that everyone was just fine letting it go was because he was a lawyer and a school board member and an upstanding guy with a young bride. And like, no one thought like he didn't have any sort of bad reputation at that point. Right. And so he was, I mean, the ultimate example of white male privilege. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> yeah. he, there was nothing to indicate that he should be suspected. Right. Except for the fact that he randomly left the woman he was marry, going to marry to go marry a kid. And then she ended up dead a month later. Yeah. And then he got a lot of money. Dudes do that. I know. You know, I've told you, I'm sure I've even mentioned it here that. You know, back when I worked for a life insurance company, that's how you found out who the execs were sleeping with. Yeah, it's true. You know, sometimes guys do that. Sometimes women do. I mean, sometimes people do that. Sure. (laughs) Yes, it's true. It's true. So do you suppose Diane knew about any of this? I don't know. Like, was this something that they hatched up together, or was she really just kind of a innocent bystander in all of this? That's, that's a good question, because she took him right back, yeah. immediately married him after the woman he, like, he left her with her children, and like... Yeah, but again, this is the early 70s. She cannot yet get a credit card in her own name. She's a single mom with four True. kids. True. Not not highly desirable. No, and, you know. No, it's true. Yeah, I don't know. There, I didn't read anything. I read several articles, but I didn't read anything about any sort of suspicion falling on her. Mm-hmm. It sounds like her daughters were upset about, um, like, I mean, they obviously had feelings about their stepdad, yeah. right? But, yeah, there wasn't any any shade being thrown her way. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. So. You know, the whole time you were telling that, I was picturing Paul Rudd. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, different Rudd, but, yeah. you know, maybe they look the same. I, um, I don't know. They do in my head now. They, Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, that would, that would be tragic, though, because he <laughs> he's such a nice-looking guy. He is. Seems like a <laughs> Here. reasonable human being. So, yeah, that is my... Death made to look like an accident story. Uh, what do you have? I have. Well, f- 
First, last week we talked about the murder of Abdi Ali Ahmed in Jamestown, North Dakota, by people we're not real sure how we knew. Uh, but they definitely killed him. This week, yeah. <laughs> definitely killed him. We're going to talk about the first result that came up when I googled most famous crime in North Dakota. <laughs> okay. I love the way you're choosing your stories lately, Diana. <laughs> Jacob Wolf was a German immigrant from Russia who immigrated to the United States. He was eight. Wait, Jacob Wolf was a German immigrant from Russia. Okay, so I'm not missing something. Yes. So as we go through, they'll talk about these families, and they refer to a lot of them as German Russians. German Russians. German Russians. And then I found an article that talked about the German Russian Triangle. That goes from Aberdeen to, I forget the other two cities, but I just happened to notice it was Aberdeen. Um, and it was largely German people who had emigrated from Russia. So I'm sure there's some sort of historical thing there that I don't know about. That you don't know about. Weird. Okay. I thought it was usually the other way around. It just, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. I'm, whatever. We're good. Yep. So I didn't look at that. <laughs> so he was a German-Russian. He was a prosperous farmer near Turtle Lake, North Dakota. His farm was neat and well cared for. He was known for his up-to-date farming methods. He was frugal. He was hardworking. In 1920, he and his wife had six daughters. Six daughters. That's a lot so of children. So many girls. That's a lot of children, yes. but it's a lot of girl children. Yes. Six daughters ranging in age from 13 down to eight months old. Six girls under 13. That that means they are all going to be teenagers in the same span of time. Oh, God. That's even worse. Yes. I don't want to give anything away. <laughs> Jacob was well-liked in town. But around this time, he had become fearful that his life might be in danger. One day, he was in Turtle Lake, and he stopped a friend on the street and told that friend that he was worried that a neighborhood might do him some harm. That friend kind of blew it off, passed it off as nothing, and didn't even ask who Jacob was scared of, but he probably should have. Yeah. Yeah. John Kraft was a neighbor of the Wolves, and he was driving by their place on the morning of April 22nd, 1920. When he noticed that the washing was still out on the line, although it was kind of drizzly out, and it was the same washing that he'd seen the day before. He thought that seemed odd. I think it seems odd that he yeah. knows his neighbor's clothing that well. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was going to say. Like, somebody here is creepy, and it's not the people whose washing is still no. out. No. <laughs> okay. All right. It's not just me. Nope. But he thought it was weird, decided to check in on the family. He drove into the farmyard when he noticed the sounds of the pigs rooting in the barn. So he went to the barn to have a look, and there he found the bodies of Jacob Wolf, who was 41, and two of his daughters, Maria, who was 10, and Edna, who was 8, half covered by dirt and hay. John Craft then went into the house, where he found five more bodies in the basement. That was Jacob's wife, Bita, their daughters, Bertha, Lydia, and Martha. They were 13, 6, and 3. 
along with the chore boy, Jacob Hoffer, who was also the son of a neighbor. Uh, and I think maybe a nephew, but I couldn't confirm that. All of the victims had been killed with a gun or a hatchet. The only survivor was baby Emma, eight months old, who was found in her crib in a bedroom, hungry and cold. Upstairs. John Kraft hauled ass into town, put in a long-distance call to the sheriff's office in Washburn. Sheriff Ole Stefferud... Oh, <laughs> was on his way to Bismarck, North Dakota with the McLean County State's attorney, John E. Williams, when he learned of the crime and they turned around to go back to Turtle Lake. There, he decided to spend the night at the Wolf Farmhouse, along with some other Wolf family members and with all eight of the bodies, which were not to be moved until the investigation was complete. Oh. So... Have you ever heard the saying that the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime? Yeah. Yeah. So that seemed to be the sheriff's primary technique in investigating this particular crime. And lo, somebody showed up. Very early the next morning, one of the guys that had stayed the night in the house, Emmanuel Hoffer, decided to drive back to his place to get some breakfast. A few minutes later, the sheriff stepped outside the house and he saw another car coming toward the house and park at the far side. The person driving got out of the car, walked up to the house and looked in the living room window. He then started walking toward the barn, but the sheriff called to him and he stopped. The man identified himself as Henry Lair, who was a neighbor, and said, my, isn't this a terrible thing? The sheriff kept Lear talking for a while, uh, waiting for the others to return. And as they talked, he grew more and more suspicious. And he noticed that Lear always kept his right hand in his pocket. When the others arrived back, the sheriff asked Hoffer if he would have had to go by the Lear place on the way to his to pick up his breakfast. Hoffer confirmed that he would have had to do that. So the sheriff deduced that Lair had seen the men go by and not knowing that the sheriff was still on the property, um, decided to come yeah. and have a look at what he'd done. Uh-huh. Lair seemed very anxious to help in the investigation and I in bet he did. catching the murderer. He would suggest some bizarre things and point out things that were obvious. And all the time, the right hand stayed in his pocket. Hmm. Around setup, Lair suggested that they all go to look for eggs in the barn. The others thought that was weird, but agreed. And once they were in the barn, Lair found a clutch of eggs and yelled, There are some! One of the other guys went to get them, and as they did, Lair declared that he'd found a bunch of shotgun shells in the hay. Magically. And after that, that right hand wasn't in the pocket anymore. Ha ha. Later that morning, crowds started showing up at the farm, along with some of the best investigators in the state. And over the next few days, they pursued every lead they could find, but nothing really came of anything. Rumors started flying that maybe there was more than one killer. Rewards were offered in the amount of $1,000, which is uh, about $12,710 today. Yeah, significant. Yeah. Two men were arrested, then they were released. A boy was picked up wandering down the road, and he was seized by a posse and bound until the sheriff came, questioned him, and set him free. 
The entire area was on edge. They were anxious that there was a killer on the loose and farmers would sit up through the night with shotguns willing to defend their home if the killer decided to strike again. Yeah. The only good clue that was found was the murder weapon. It was found in a slough near the Wolf Farm with about an inch of its stock coming out from the water. It was a shotgun. No one knew who owned it. And even the manufacturer didn't have a record of that particular gun. Hmm. Through all of this, the sheriff kept thinking about Henry Lair and how he'd shown up the morning after the murders. Henry Lair was born Heinrich Lair on November 12, 1884 in Russia and came to the U.S. When, with his family when he was about two. They originally settled near Ashley, North Dakota, and Henry lived there until 1916. He married Matilda Miller in 1904, and they had two children together. In 1911, they divorced. Scandalous. And the children stayed with their mom. He married again in 1912 to a woman named Lydia, and they had six children together. The Layers were neighbors of the wolves, and there had been some trouble between them. Some of Layers' livestock had wandered over to the wolf farm, and Wolf's dog had bitten one of the Layers' cows. There were hard feelings all the way around, and Lair had gossiped with the other neighbors about the wolves. So the bodies were found on Saturday. On Wednesday, funeral services were held for the wolves and the hired boy. And although Turtle Lake had only about 400 residents at the time, 2,500 people showed up for the funeral at the wolf farm. <laughs> Aww. I mean, that's super touching, but also like, so nobody had anything to do and everyone came. Everybody came. Um, there is a picture. They had the funeral out at the farm. There's a picture of all eight coffins and like probably oh. a couple hundred people behind them. I mean, that is super tragic, though. Yeah. Yeah. In that crowd was Henry Layer. And although he seemed to be grieving the loss of his neighbors, he did insist that the lid on each coffin be raised so he could see the faces of the dead family one last time. Mm -hmm. Although there was no physical evidence tying Lair to the crime scene, law enforcement thought that they had enough circumstantial evidence to convict him. They went to his farm quietly so as not to alert the neighbors and arrested him. Before they took him away, he hitched the horses to the wagon so his wife could take the children somewhere else, saying that she'd be afraid to stay on the farm by herself. He then kissed his wife and each of his children and said goodbye. Investigators were worried that they wouldn't be able to get him to talk, so they set up a ruse. On the way to the jail, the car that was carrying Lair and the others stopped to pick up a man who had darted across the road in front of the car. He was a private investigator, and he was also brought to jail and placed near Lair in the hopes that Lair would say something incriminating to his new buddy. But, yeah. but Lair wasn't in the mood to talk. The next day, the questioning began in earnest with the detectives badgering Lair. This went on for hours, but Lair kept saying that he was innocent. At one point, he told them, my eyes have seen, but my hands are clean. Ooh, he's a poet and doesn't know it. On advice of a reporter that was waiting to break the news of the anticipated confession, they showed Layer the pictures that had been taken the day the murders were discovered. Terrible pictures of the mangled bodies and one showing little Emma in her crib. Layer finally broke down. 
he confirmed that there had been bad blood between him and Jacob Wolf, that he'd gone over to the Wolf farm to demand damages for the injury to his cow that the dog bite had caused. Mm-hmm. An argument broke out, and Wolf ordered Lair to leave. And when he didn't, Wolf went and got his own shotgun and put two bullets into the chamber. Mm-hmm. Lair grabbed for the gun, and a struggle ensued. During the struggle, according to his story, the gun went off twice accidentally. Mm-hmm. One of those bullets killed Mrs. Wolf, and the other killed the chore boy, Jacob Hoffer. Wolf ran into the yard. Lair grabbed more ammunition. He fired at Wolf, hit him in the back, and then got closer and shot him again. Two little girls ran screaming to the barn, but Layer chased them there and killed them both. Meanwhile, in the house, three other little girls were screaming. Layer went back into the house, shot two of them with a shotgun, and killed the other one with a hatchet. That's sick. That's like, it is one thing to shoot at people from a distance it is entirely different to kill a small child with a hatchet yeah or even a shotgun in a room well yes just god then he dragged jacob wolf's body out to the barn placed it beside two of the daughters and covered them all up with hay and dirt he then went back to the house and pushed the other five bodies through the trap door to the cellar when he uh, was asked why he hadn't killed baby Emma, he said that he hadn't known that she was there. He hadn't gone she into that room. Just being quiet. Mm-hmm. The following noon, Lair was arraigned, and immediately afterward, he was brought into court where he pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to life with hard labor, and exactly 48 hours after his arrest, he entered the state prison. Layer served five years in prison before complications from appendix surgery killed him on March 21st, 1925. His obituary said that he was buried in a local cemetery, but nobody knows where his body is. The Wolf family was buried in a local cemetery altogether. And the headstone on the plot reads their name along with the German phrase. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and give a trigger warning that I don't speak German. Die Ermordete Familie which is the murdered family in German. Oh my gosh. Emma Wolf, the only surviving member of the Wolf family, was sent to live with her aunt and uncle until they died. And then she lived with a local grocer who was appointed as her benefactor until she was 18. She married, she had children, and she died in 2003 at the age of 84. That is so super tragic. Yeah. Over a cow. Well, yeah, ostensibly. So he maintained his innocence till the very end. Um, He he did the confession, but then he later said that he'd been coerced uh, and that Uh. he had the third degree put to him. But it doesn't really seem like that was the case. Um, You know, again, 48 hours between arrest, confession and into prison, you know, they hadn't worn him down over much. Right. Um, there was a lot of talk. The sheriff, sheriff, uh, I think it was the sheriff. One of the guys in, involved in investigating it had a political career and thought that a conviction would further his political career. So there's some talk about that he didn't do it. 
And this was all just kind of a political thing to get somebody in jail. But no, as far as I could tell, there were no other theories as to what happened. Right. And I don't want to point out the obvious, but there was some serial killer shit in there. He went and looked. He looked at the funeral. He helped them investigate it. He wanted to find the murder. He, you know, planted evidence to throw them off the track. Like, it was textbook. Like, fucking textbook behavior all the way around. Yeah. And again, it's 1920. People were... They don't have a textbook. There was no textbook, but... Looking yeah. back, there was motive, yeah. there was opportunity, there was behavior that suggests that he's 100% the guy that did it. And there right. seems to be no evidence that anybody else would have. Right. All those kids. Diana, so I intentionally children. looked for a story that did not have children being murdered. I mean, I guess we could argue that my person was 19, but. <sighs> That's true. And then I, mean, I, I totally the went baby there. Lived. The baby did live. Yeah, I mean, your baby lived. My baby lived. Um, I shouldn't tell you then that four of Layer's children ended up in the orphanage and one of them was tragically killed in a horrible accident. Wow. Diana for the win this week, guys. She is the uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about the awesome granny with her yarn. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So um, apparently there's a yeah. book written by a professor who grew up like right there. Uh-huh. Um, I did not read it since this morning, but I think I might. It's fi- it's a fictionalized account. Right. Um, but he was able to find like it's contemporary probably- coverage and, and all that good stuff. So yeah, it's probably really good actually. Yeah, it probably is. Um, so I should hunt that down, add it to the, yeah. Massive pile of books I have accumulated. Yeah, I'm there as well. How about listening, though? Have you done any listening? I have done some listening. Actually, this is one that I have been listening to for a while. Um, but I got all excited because one of the hosts posted in one of the post- podcast groups that you and I belong to. And I went yeah. all fangirl. <laughs> I love it. <that. laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is by the book. And now that I say it, I kind of think I've pimped this one before, haven't I? Maybe, but I think you should talk about it anyway. Okay, because it's a good one. Um, So it's two ladies, Kristen Meisner and Jolenta Greenberg, and they read self-help books and live by them for two weeks. So I know you told me about this recently. I don't know if you've talked about it on the podcast. I can't remember. Um, But they go for some of the classics. They've done like the five love languages and men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But they've also done some of the more popular recent ones. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. Um, What was that other one? I have the book and I haven't read it yet. Pants drunk. Uh, It was the Huga of last year. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. so they live by it for two weeks and they talk about whether or not the book is any good and the advice is any good and what they learned and then every once in a while they had their husbands come in and talk about how it is to live with that (laughs) (laughs) it's just and then we get to see what it's really like right exactly and they do recordings like they do kind of little audio diaries while they're doing this uh, and sometimes the husbands are involved in that too when they're like talking over a concept or there's disagreement about 
you know, what's going on in there. But lots of really cool things. Um, I was especially thinking about it because I don't know if you know this, but Rachel Held Evans died today. No. Um, I've only read one of her books because uh, she was somewhat more religious than I'm strictly comfortable with in general. Um, But she wrote The Year of Biblical Womanhood. Okay. Um, Which, I don't know, it's not necessarily a self-help book, but uh, kind of in that vein of living something from a book for a certain amount of time and what she learned and, right, and right. that kind of stuff. And she, uh, she died today at the age of 37. Wow. That is so young. Yeah. Of, of what do we know? She had an infection, um, and then somehow started having seizures from it. And then there wow. was just horrible. Uh, they put her in a medically induced coma and there was horrible, uh, brain swelling and stuff. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So I enjoyed the work of hers. I did read because <laughs> I like right? those things like the AJ Jacobs and all that kind of like, let's do absurd shit for a set amount of time. Right. Well, I mean, cool about the podcast though. Yes. It's a good podcast. Uh, it's very funny. Um, they're a really fun pair together. That's fine. Yeah. I love when hosts have good chemistry like that. Yeah. That's a huge part of whether or not I would listen to something is, is do I like the personality of the person? Like content is great. Right. But yeah, if you don't like the personality. <laughs> but I'm really a people person. Cool. Yeah. So well, I listened what to something too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I listened to something by somebody that I've met, (gasps) which is very, well, I've met like virtually, like on Skype, not in person. (laughs) Um, but there is a girl named Kayla Grimm and she actually has a couple podcasts, but I listened to her, uh, she does one that's just a single host. Mm -hmm. Um, so just her and it's called Get Grimm. Yay! Right. And then, so when you think of the name Grimm, you think of like... Fables and fairy tales. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's what her thing is about, what her podcast is about. So it's all um, like fairy tales and mythology and all of that kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So I listened to her Halloween episode and it was all about, you know, where does Halloween come from and what sort of traditions kind of inform what we do today. And it was really cool. Uh, she's great. She's very clever. She has kind of a dry, like self-deprecating kind of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know because of our of you know our conversations that she is a teacher, mm-hmm. um, and that this podcast was kind of started as a like here's what if I could just teach, right? And there weren't state rules and tests and blah blah (laughs) this is how i would do it and this is what i would teach and um it's it's great it is amazing i really liked it um the other thing about kayla is that she has a i don't want to say a relationship with a serial killer because that is misleading that seems uh (laughs) concerning actually and concerning yeah dangerously Right, right. No, but she has a sort of seven degrees of six degrees. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Six 
six degrees, perhaps seven degrees of, anyway, <laughs> uh, relationship to a very famous serial killer. And I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that, except that I feel like our audience should keep their ears and eyes open for some upcoming things about that. From us. From us. I and Kayla. can't wait. I can't wait either. And I have been preparing and preparing and, pre- and I know you've been preparing. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. So, um, as you know, but our listeners don't, I have had a clusterfuck of a week. <laughs> yeah. yeah, your week has been rough. It's been rough. Um, but one of the things that was rough about my week is that we did not have power. or No, we had power, mostly. Um, <laughs> For a little while, you didn't have power. For a little while, we didn't have power. Um, but we... Was that the same day? We didn't have hot water or heat, and it was cold. Yes. So yeah. the plumber came over to fix the boiler to give us hot water and heat again. And I was down there and I was talking to him and we were talking like podcasts and true crime and his wife's a big true crime. And I told him what our upcoming thing is. And yes. he was so excited. And the other guy that was with him that did not seem to necessarily be into true crime was also super excited about it. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I feel like that is a stronger recommendation. Right. If you're not into it and you still think well, it's cool. And he certainly could have been. He was being uh, more quiet because he was doing more work. So <laughs> <laughs> he was the one that was really working on the boiler and... Uh, the other guy and I were, were chatting mostly, but (laughs) so it could be that he was just, you know, preoccupied with my boiler. I mean, that is also probably a good thing for him to do since that is why you were paying. Oh my God. I was so cold except for my right calf, (laughs) which was quite toasty, which was totally fine because it is encased in a giant boot. Yep. Mm -hmm. I got the boot. (laughs) (laughs) well i am super excited for our thing and i think everybody should you know just check out our social media a little more often in the next couple weeks yes it's gonna be so cool i'm so excited it is gonna be really cool um let's see okay so podcasts stories we did some shout outs Mm -hmm. I feel like it is time for me to say, Diana, do you have any advice for us this week? You do. Don't be a creeper at funerals. Wait, let's go, let's go ahead and expand that. Don't be a creeper. Yeah, no, really. I, yeah. Yeah. Don't be a creeper. Sound, Don't dress good. up like you're in the 70s because that automatically gives you like a 35% creeper factor. <laughs> I think that is being... <laughs> conservative Uh, depending on i mean if you go full leisure suit then we're up to you know 70 (laughs) (laughs) call your people call your people and don't end up on next week's episode